Welcome to Failing Forward. We're really excited to have some guests from CRS, Catholic Relief Services, with us today. So, Gregory, can we start with you? Can you introduce yourself for our audience? Thank you, Emily. My name is Greg Makabila. I work with CRS uh, based in Ethiopia. I am the deputy of party for a residence food security activity that uh, is implemented here in Ethiopia. And Maria, how about you? My name is Maria Alamu. I am the technical advisor for uh, collaboration, learning, and adapting for the uh, Ethiopia Rexa. Right. And why is learning from failure particularly relevant in your context? Give us a little bit of background. Yeah, that's a good question. The, 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 the first thing is like the nature of the activity we're implementing. It's a resiliency food security activity, which is having a refine and implement phase. Like we're on the second year now. We're still in the third year. But the first year was just refining the program so that you have got a better chance of implementation. So this means there's a lot of learning embedded into it. The other factor is we implement in a very diverse context, politically, culturally, economically, which requires us to innovate. And in the process of innovating, you end up trying out a lot of things, some of which may work, some may not work. The third thing is the way the program was designed, the RFA, the donor intentionally stated the importance of using lessons learned to really tweak our programming. So it was a, an expectation for us to learn from failure and success as well. The other point I'd like to mention is we had a very strong leadership support. Our leader, the chief of party, continuously urged us to try out new things, not to fear failing. And that really brought us to this a place whereby failing and learning from failure became important to the program. Maria, do you have something to add? Uh, we do staff engagement survey every year within CRS. And one of the points that showed uh, a little lower performance uh, response from the staff is about taking a risk uh, and innovating with the fear of uh, making mistakes. And that was a lower engagement in result compared to the past. And we showed us like uh, we will need to encourage more innovation and encourage the staff to take some, some level of risk uh, with the aim to improve our program. So what actions have you taken to foster more learning from failure and to foster more willingness to take risks? So uh, we take it as personal and personal personal level and organizational level. Personally, it has changed uh, individually uh, in the program team, including myself, uh, in terms of understanding and uh, learning from failure and how we can be intentional to learn from the process. In our pro in organizational level, especially within the RIFSA, we make the CLA position key. Uh, which is a major position to lead us through different learning opportunities from research, uh, including failure, learning from failure. There is, as Greg mentioned, a good leadership support to encourage the staff to take risk and also innovate uh, without fear of uh, failing and making mistakes. The refinement here by itself was an opportunity for us to look back to our design and um, make changes where necessary. The other action we've taken is we've, we've identified milestones within the implementation cycle and tried to use those milestones to encourage learning from failure. One of the milestones is the prep process, 
PREP is the pipeline resource estimate proposal, which is the mini proposal we send to our donor BHA once every year around May. So before that, we encourage staff to really reflect on their work and we make a lot of tweaks to the program. And some of them are because of the failures that we have gone through. We made it intentional for people to look at failure when they are working on the PREP. Then the other action we did, which was we organized the first ever failure summit within the country program, which was well attended by different people. And it was a three-day event. I'll talk about it later in this discussion. We also have an adaptive management tracking tool. We have a tool that tracks adaptations from all sources, including mistakes. So the tool is structured in a way that it anticipates new adaptations and it reflects on past adaptations. So that really helps people to think through the changes they're planning to make within the program. Uh, after the failure summit, we also try to embed some of the lessons learned from the failure workshop to adopt some of the tools which are now being used by the teams in the field. What difference has this made for the programming? Can you give us some practical examples? The, one of the biggest differences we've noticed is staff motivation. Like our staff, knowing that the leadership can actually finance a workshop for them to reflect on failure and to guarantee them that you can fail, staff feel motivated, they are happy that they have the backing of the leadership as they try out new innovations. The other thing is people have gained new competencies. In the past, we used to fail by chance, but now we have got tools like the pre-mortem tool, which helps you to think about what could go wrong before it goes wrong. So staff have gained some skill and competency in anticipating failure, failing safely and failing forward. The third thing in terms of program impact, by making decisions in good time after reflection, we've improved the quality of our programming. I'll give one example. We used to have a component within our wash sector about latrine construction, and we are promoting one type of latrine, but the cost of the latrine construction was so high, it was almost $200. None of our households would comfortably afford $200 for latrine. But because we had put in a lot of costs as a program, the sunk cost effect, we kept promoting it. But when we sat, stepped back and reflected, we realized this thing just is not working. So we had to completely change the intervention. And now we are promoting different and multiple types of latrine from the program after learning from the failure of only promoting one. And we are seeing better numbers in terms of latrine coverage and the working with government is even more fun because they're really appreciating the kind of effort we are putting in place on the latrine construction. In terms of also engaging with others, um, we engaged our donor, uh, USAID, and also other other MSG implementer, implementers in the country that are also peer with RIFSA. And it was appreciated, and uh, um, we were able to see how the our donor and others also perceived for us being vulnerable and talk about failure in front of others, and uh, that was appreciated. And can we talk a little bit about how you know when something's failing? So, Greg, the example you gave about latrines that that you were really promoting but weren't working for the communities. What told you that that wasn't working? Yeah, results. Results told us that was working. Adoption levels were very low. 
we had a target of constructing 50,000 latrines and it took us over here to even get to 20. And even those 20 were failing on the ground because the input costs were not supportive of the construction. Then the household were not just taking them up. We have construction engineers, we are trained on the ground, like the local artisans who can construct the toilets. They were suffering to get market for the construction. So those adoption levels told us that something is not working here. The second thing is we also are getting feedback from other stakeholders. Like Aruna was asking us, are you sure you have to continue promoting this? And then internally within the conversation, because we have that spirit of asking each other questions, even in our own reflection, some team members were starting to ask, are we really promoting the right thing to the communities? And all of us were in agreement at some point that this is not the way to go. So there are multiple ways of knowing it's failing, but really having an open eye and an open ear to feedback from all angles is what's going to help us really know if it's working or not working. So you've talked a little bit about using your existing tools, for example, your m and data, you know, have we actually delivered these activities or not using your prep process. What are some of the other tools and practical examples for learning from failure? What, when, where, and who? So we have multiple tools that we use at different levels. We, and, and in, in the process of learning uh, from failure, we adopted uh, the adaptive management tracking tool that we actually have been using also in the past and continue using these modifications. That tool tells us what changes that we have made, we have made on the original design of the different interventions that we have and also what triggered those changes. The implementation experience, new knowledge, new uh, evidence has been uh, key areas for our adaptive management processes and informing our adaptations. Um, and it also helps you to reflect on how it's progressing. That's one tool. And then the other tool we've now learned even how to use better is the after action review, asking what did you plan to do? What did you end up doing? What worked? What didn't work and why? And how do we move forward? That has proved to be very useful for us because our staff now embedded after action reviews in their processes and they're doing it more immediate. The other tool which we practiced during the workshop and we have liked it as well is the five whys of failure. Just like you normally do problem three and you ask why, why, why. So we are also getting into this tool of five whys of failure. And interestingly, when we dug to the root causes of failure by asking why five times, we stopped focusing on the failures because the root causes were more important. We were able to see coordination, collaboration, integration across sectors and across departments were the fundamental causes of most of our failures. So that's a tool we've also been using. And uh, picking the most significant learning, we found it very important to focus and do more and use the information that we get from the process so that we can prepare and plan for those challenges that we anticipated uh, before we start even the implementation. Yeah, and we would call this a tool also. We have now institutionalized the learning from failure workshop, which we'll be doing every year. And we think it will go a long way in helping us to communicate to stakeholders about the failure. Just say something more about the pre-mortem tool is after we did the failure workshop, we took that tool and made it part of our systems. 
So we do commodity distribution to more than 200,000 clients using FDPs. FDP is final distribution point. And we noted there are some repeated issues that keep coming from the post the PDMs. One of the issues, for example, waiting time at the FDP. So what we are now doing before distribution begins, they do a pre-mortem and I test what could go wrong and how do we stop it or from going wrong or reduce the chances that it will go wrong. And then at the end of the distribution cycle, they do an after action review. So these two tools we believe are going to go a long way in reducing chances of failure within the implementation cycle. That's a great example of thinking about how do you do distribution and how do you start and end with some reflection to think about what might go wrong with a pre-mortem tool and then what worked and what didn't with an after action review. One thing I notice when I'm working with teams is they will often say, especially on the distribution day, we're very busy. That is extra time for learning. Those examples, those tools you're giving us, that's more work to do. We're too busy for that. How do you convince people that these are good things to be applying, even when they're having a very busy day? What we learned uh, during the workshop is the after-action review. People who spent the last 15 minutes of the day doing an after-action review were more than 10% more productive than people who spent those last 15 minutes working. If we do it with them and give them this kind of evidence and we guide them on the process, they will definitely adopt it. And when they start seeing the changes, people having less time at the FDP than it used to be, will be good. So to encourage that, we reward improvements in performance. We can do uh, a letter of commendation to the best performing FDPs. So those kind of tools, they help to encourage people to try out new things. And when they start seeing it is making their work easier, they continue doing it. And part of what you're describing is really a whole ecosystem. You're talking about leadership support and encouragement and specific tools for learning from failure and incentive structures. So there's lots of different tools that you're kind of bringing together to create this system where staff feel more able to take risks and talk about learning from failure. Exactly. So what has surprised you so far? We usually expect some change following uh, after a major reflection process. So unlike the other times, uh, after uh, following our reflection on, on our failures, we have not seen any change suggested on the theory of change, uh, which is surprising for us because that's the kind of uh, change that we usually see. But the most of the changes were suggested on our processes and approach of how we are implementing. Yeah, and just another factor, like the five ways of failure tried to show us that the problem is not the design, it's the coordination, the collaboration. So that was very surprising for us. The fact that we went in thinking we'll change the theory of change, and then we left out realizing we have to react to change our coordination, collaboration, and engagement structures. I think the other thing that surprised us was, so this was the first time we were openly starting to discuss failure in the team. And we called our team and told them we are planning a failure summit. I knew, we knew that there'd be some reservations, but the level of reservation that we noticed was higher than our expected levels. Some staff could not even mention the word failure. They were calling it that thing. The good thing is when we showed them the definition, they agreed with the definition of failure, how CRS defines failure. But 
calling it failure, they felt it was very uncomfortable. And the fact that we are going to share all this with our donors, they are very scared of being criticized. But by the end of the process, people are very comfortable discussing failure. In our office now, we've posted the definition of failure at the entrance, and everybody's comfortable with it. What is your definition of failure? It is a preventable flaws in design or implementation that reduce efficiency, compromise processes, and limit overall impact. That's very close to what CARE talks about, too. For us, um, often when you read a report, and, and, and Greg, you mentioned, people don't want to say failure. So you'll see things like challenges or lessons learned or improvements, but you won't see failure. And for CARE, one of the important distinctions is a challenge is something that's completely outside of our control. Something changes in the context. There's a flood. There's desert locusts. That's not a failure because there's nothing we could have done about that. A failure, yeah. as Maria, you mentioned, it's something preventable. It's something that we can do something about because it's part of our own processes. And it's it's an interesting distinction, but um, it takes a while for people to be comfortable talking about that. And and we get a lot of people who are like, do we have to call it failing forward? Did we use different words here? Exactly. <laughs> they were even telling us, why don't we just call it lesson learned? Area for improvement. I think that conversation is healthy. People start realizing like it's not the end as long as you're learning from your failures. And people are very comfortable with it compared to when we started this process. It's interesting you also mentioned at the beginning you assumed a lot of the failures would be about design and a lot of the adaptations would be to the theory of change. We see that too, where there's so much focus on trying to design something perfectly and the assumption that failures are failures of design. When you talk about coordination and, and collaboration being one of the main areas where you see failures, can you give us a couple examples there? So for example, a lot of the delays in implementation are boiling down to logistical support. When procurement, logistical support, et cetera, when we dove deeper and asked why, 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 we realized we never engage our procurement staff before the beginning of implementation. Like there's that broken link, whereby we assume they know what we want and they assume they know what we want. Getting them to talk together reduces a lot. So now after the workshop, there are more structured procurement plans, then more sitting together, people are planning together. But if we don't do that, even the specifications, we get to them very late. But now with this new thinking, trying to work on how we work rather than what we work on is helping to improve on that. That's just one example. But there are a couple of others around even sectoral integration. We have a nice tool for integrating, but you find it's not consistent across all the levels. And those are the things which came out of the workshop rather than design change. One of the, the frequently mentioned decision makings that we can decentralize to increase efficiency up to community level uh, offices that we can decentralize some of uh, some of our functions to to make them able to make some decisions some uh, manage some process by themselves so that our efficiency can improve on exactly so that sounds like great progress what's next where do you take your quest from here <laughs> the, the the first challenge is keep doing what we are doing <laughs> trying to really keep the momentum on learning from failure is a big next step for us. To do that, like I said, we have made this one a mandatory learning event that will be done every year. 
we'll try to manage the timing so that it happens before the prep process so people can put some of the learnings into the prep. The other thing we are moving forward with is even our donor, like uh, USAID, is, they are very supportive of learning from failure, but we want to continue engaging them more to really look at failure the way, the way we are promoting it, and then to provide support tools, et cetera, to learn from failure. Our country program here in Ethiopia, this is the first time we are doing this learning event, and the first time we are really starting to discuss failure uh, thoroughly, and we want to engage them more because all the support structures that our program relies on are based on the country program, be it finance, be it logistics, be it all those HR. So when we all have the same language, or we're speaking in the same language, we think there'll be more progress in terms of learning from failure. And what do you still not know about learning from failure? Where do you want to keep exploring? We've been mentioning the different tools that we have used for the with the failure summit and also in our engagement after the workshop. But we wonder if there are uh, more tools out there that we can also uh, explore and try uh, to help our processes in learning from failure. And what's your advice for other people who are seeking to learn from failure? What should they do? They need to be brave. It won't be easy because like you have we tried to convince our staff it took a lot of time and they are convinced now. So like they need to really go there knowing that it's 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 a sensitive topic to some people. It's it's not going to be easy always. Context might differ, but they just need to really be brave inside and make sure they they, they pass the message along. The other thing is looking at the bright side of learning from failure. Like the example I gave you of the latrine coverage, we saved a lot of money by making that decision and agreeing that we are failing. If we continued doing that intervention as it was being done and not accepting it as failed, we'd be sinking money into the wrong place. But really knowing that learning from failure can help you save on costs or time or other resources, people need to know that. As we prepare for the failure summit, we've been engaging the team in different uh, processes, including sending out emails on the preparation and also uh, preparing the team on the topic and what to expect from the uh, summit. Uh, One thing that really helped us to uh, engage the team as our unit, as MIL team, is us becoming vulnerable first and also giving of examples that we found is very, very useful. Yeah, start from your own examples before you ask for others to Mm. give. Yeah, that's definitely a key learning from our side too, is if you're not willing to share your own examples, you're never going to get anyone else on the team to be open about it. Is there anything else you want to share that I haven't given you a chance to say today? Yeah, I think what what I can share is if people want the resources from the failure workshop that we use, we can package and send to you for dissemination. But also, thank you. Keep doing these podcasts. They're very useful ways of learning from failure and also just collaborating. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for coming and sharing your expertise today. It's always exciting to hear what others are working on, and I'm definitely going to borrow some of those tools and resources. So thanks so much for your time. Thank Thank you. you very much. 
And to our audience, thank you so much for listening this week. Stay tuned for more Failing Forward.